Chapter Twelve of A Hazard of New Fortunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Fulkerson stopped and looked at March, whom he saw lapsing into a serious silence. Doubtless he divined his uneasiness with the facts that had been given him to digest. He pulled out his watch and glanced at it. See here, how would you like to go up to Forty Sixth Street with me and drop in on Old Dryfoos? Now's your chance. He's going west tomorrow and won't be back for a month or so. They'll all be glad to see you, and you'll understand things better when you've seen him and his family. I can't explain." March reflected a moment. Then he said, with a wisdom that surprised him, for he would have liked to yield to the impulse of his curiosity, "'Perhaps we'd better wait till Mrs. March comes down, and let things take the usual course. The Dreyfus ladies will want to call on her as the last comer, and if I treat myself en garçon now, and paid the first visit, it might complicate matters." "'Well, perhaps you're right,' said Fulkerson. "'I don't know much about these things, and I don't believe Ma Dryfoos does either.' He was on his legs, lighting another cigarette. "'I suppose the girls are getting themselves up in etiquette, though. Well, then, let's have a look at the every-other-week building and then, if you like your quarters there, you can go round and close for Mrs. Green's flat." March's dormant allegiance to his wife's wishes had been roused by his decision in favour of good social usage. "'I don't think I shall take the flat,' he said. "'Well, don't reject it without giving it another look, anyway. Come on.' He helped March on with his light overcoat, and the little stir they made for their departure caught the notice of the old German. He looked up from his beer at them. March was more than ever impressed with something familiar in his face. In compensation for his prudence in regard to the Dreyfuses, he now indulged an impulse. He stepped across to where the old man sat, with his bald head shining like ivory under the gas-jet, and his fine patriarchal length of bearded mask taking picturesque lights and shadows, and put out his hand to him. Lindau, isn't this Mr. Lindau? The old man lifted himself slowly to his feet with mechanical politeness, and cautiously took March's hand. Yes, my name is Lindau, he said slowly, while he scanned March's face. Then he broke into a long cry. Ah, my dear boy, my good friend, my, my, it is Passel March, not so? Ah, ha, ha, ha! How glad I am to see you! Why, I am glad! And you remembered me? You remember Schiller and Goethe and Uhland? And Indianapolis? You still live in Indianapolis? It shears my heart to see you. But you are a little old, too. Twenty-five years makes a difference. Ah, I am glad! Tell me, it is Basil March, not so? He looked anxiously into March's face with a gentle smile of mixed hope and doubt, and March said, "'As sure as it's Berthold Lindau, and I guess it's you. And you remember the old times? You were as much of a boy as I was, Lindau. Are you living in New York? Do you recollect how you tried to teach me to fence? I don't know how to this day, Lindau. How good you were, and how patient! Do you remember how we used to sit up in the little parlour, back of your printing office, and read Die Räuber and Die Teilung der Erde und Die Glocke? And Mrs. Lindau, is she with— Dead, dead, long ago, right after I got home from the war, twenty years ago. 
But tell me, you are married? Children? Yes, good. And how old are you now? It makes me seventeen to see you, Lindau, but I've got a son nearly as old. Ah, ha, ha, good. And where do you live? Well, I'm just coming to live in New York, March said, looking over at Fulkerson, who had been watching his interview with the perfunctory smile of sympathy that people put on at the meeting of old friends. I want to introduce you to my friend, Mr. Fulkerson. He and I are going into a literary enterprise here. Ah, so, said the old man, with polite interest. He took Fulkerson's proffered hand, and they all stood talking a few moments together. Then Fulkerson said, with another look at his watch, Well, March, we're keeping Mr. Lindau from his dinner. Dinner, cried the old man. It's better than bread and meat to see Mr. March. I must be going anyway, said March, but I must see you again soon, Lindau. Where do you live? I want a long talk. And I. You will find me here at dinner-time, said the old man. It is the best place. And March fancied him reluctant to give another address. To cover his consciousness, he answered gaily, Then it's Auf Wiedersehen with us. Well. Also. The old man took his hand, and made a mechanical movement with his mutilated arm, as if he would have taken it in a double clasp. He laughed at himself. I wanted to give you the other hand, too, but I gave it to your country a good while ago. To my country? asked March, with a sense of pain, and yet lightly, as if it were a joke of the old man's. Your country, too, Lindau. The old man turned very grave, and said, almost coldly, What country has a poor man got, Mr. March? Well, you ought to have a share in the one you helped to save for us rich men, Lindau. March returned, still humouring the joke. The old man smiled sadly, but made no answer as he sat down again. "'Seems to be a little soured,' said Fulkerson, as they went down the steps. He was one of those Americans whose habitual conception of life is unalloyed prosperity. When any experience or observation of his went counter to it, he suffered, something like physical pain. He eagerly shrugged away the impression left upon his buoyancy by Lindau, and added to March's continued silence, "'What did I tell you about meeting every man in New York that you ever knew before?' "'I never expected to meet Lindau in the world again,' said March, more to himself than to Fulkerson. "'I had an impression that he had been killed in the war. I almost wish he had been.' "'Oh, hello now!' cried Fulkerson. March laughed, but went on soberly. He was a man predestined to adversity, though. When I first knew him out in Indianapolis, he was starving along with a sick wife and a sick newspaper. It was before the Germans had come over to the Republicans generally, but Lindau was fighting the anti-slavery battle just as naturally at Indianapolis in 1858 as he fought behind the barricades in Berlin in 1848. And yet he was always such a gentle soul, and so generous. He taught me German for the love of it. He wouldn't spoil his pleasure by taking a cent from me. He seemed to get enough out of my being young and enthusiastic, and out of prophesying great things for me. I wonder what the poor old fellow is doing here, with that one hand of his. "'Not amassing a very handsome pittance, I guess, as Artemus Ward would say,' said Fulkerson getting back some of his lightness. 
There are lots of two-handed fellows in New York that are not doing much better, I guess. Maybe he gets some writing on the German papers. I hope so. He's one of the most accomplished men. He used to be a splendid musician, pianist, and knows eight or ten languages. Well, it's astonishing, said Fulkerson, how much lumber those Germans can carry around in their heads all their lives and never work it up into anything. It's a pity they couldn't do the acquiring and let out the use of their learning to a few bright Americans. We could make things hum if we could arrange them that way. He talked on, unheeded by March, who went along half-consciously tormented by his lightness in the pensive memories the meeting with Lindau had called up. Was this all that sweet, unselfish nature could come to? What a homeless old age, at that meagre Italian table d'hôte, with that tall glass of beer for half an hour's oblivion! That shabby dress, that pathetic mutilation! He must have a pension, twelve dollars a month or eighteen, from a grateful country. But what else did he eke out with? "'Well, here we are,' said Fulkerson cheerily. He ran up the steps before March and opened the carpenter's temporary valve in the door-frame, and led the way into a darkness smelling sweetly of unpainted woodwork and newly dried plaster. Their feet slipped on shavings and grated on sand. He scratched a match and found a candle, and then walked about up and down stairs, and lectured on the advantages of the place. He had fitted up bachelor apartments for himself in the house, and said that he was going to have a flat to let on the top floor. I didn't offer it to you, because I supposed you'd be too proud to live over your shop. And it's too small, anyway, only five rooms. Yes, that's too small, said March, shirking the other point. "'Well, then, here's the room I intend for your office,' said Fulkerson, showing him into a large back parlour one flight up. "'You'll have it quiet from the street noises here, and you can be at home or not as you please. There'll be a boy on the stairs to find out. Now, you see, this makes the Grosvenor Green flat practicable, if you want it.' March felt the forces of fate closing about him, and pushing him to a decision. He feebly fought them off till he could have another look at the flat. Then, baked and subdued still more by the unexpected presence of Mrs. Grosvenor Green herself, who was occupying it so as to be able to show it effectively, he took it. He was aware more than ever of its absurdities. He knew that his wife would never cease to hate it. But he had suffered one of those eclipses of the imagination to which men of his temperament are subject and into which he could see no future for his desires. He felt a comfort in irretrievably committing himself, and exchanging the burden of indecision for the burden of responsibility. "'I don't know,' said Fulkerson, as they walked back to his hotel together, "'but you might fix it up with that lone widow and her pretty daughter to take part of their house here.' He seemed to be reminded of it by the fact of passing the house, and March looked up at its dark front. He could not have told exactly why he felt a pang of remorse at the sight, and doubtless it was more regret for having taken the Grosvenor Green flat than for not having taken the widow's rooms. Still, he could not forget her wistfulness when his wife and he were looking at them, and her disappointment when they decided against them. He had toyed in his after-talk to Mrs. March with the sort of hypothetical obligation they had to modify their plans so as to meet the widow's want of just such a family as theirs. 
They had both said what a blessing it would be to her, and what a pity they could not do it. But they had decided very distinctly that they could not. Now it seemed to him that they might, and he asked himself whether he had not actually departed as much from their ideal as if he had taken board with the widow. Suddenly it seemed to him that his wife asked him this too. "'I reckon,' said Fulkerson, "'that she could have arranged to give you your meals in your rooms, and it would have come to about the same thing as housekeeping.' "'No sort of boarding can be the same as housekeeping,' said March. "'I want my little girl to have the run of a kitchen, and I want the whole family to have the moral effect of housekeeping. It's demoralizing to board, in every way. It isn't a home if anybody else takes the care of it off your hands.' "'Well, I suppose so,' Fulkerson assented. But March's words had a hollow ring to himself, and in his own mind he began to retaliate his dissatisfaction upon Fulkerson. He parted from him on the usual terms outwardly, but he felt obscurely abused by Fulkerson in regard to the Dreyfuses, father and son. He did not know but Fulkerson had taken an advantage of him in allowing him to commit himself to their enterprise without fully and frankly telling him who and what his backer was. He perceived that with young Dryfoos as the publisher, and Fulkerson as the general director of the paper, there might be very little play for his own ideas of its conduct. Perhaps it was the hurt to his vanity involved by the recognition of this fact that made him forget how little choice he really had in the matter, and how, since he had not accepted the offer to edit the insurance paper, nothing remained for him but to close with Fulkerson. In this moment of suspicion and resentment, he accused Fulkerson of hastening his decision in regard to the Grosvenor Green apartment. He now refused to consider it a decision, and said to himself that if he felt disposed to do so, he would send Mrs. Green a note reversing it in the morning. But he put it all off till morning with his clothes, when he went to bed, he put off even thinking what his wife would say. He cast Fulkerson and his constructive treachery out of his mind, too, and invited into it some pensive reveries of the past, when he still stood at the parting of the ways, and could take this path or that. In his middle life this was not possible. He must follow the path chosen long ago, wherever it led. He was not master of himself, as he once seemed, but the servant of those he loved. If he could do what he liked, perhaps he might renounce this whole New York enterprise, and go off somewhere out of the reach of care, but he could not do what he liked, that was very clear. In the pathos of this conviction he dwelt compassionately upon the thought of poor old Lindau. He resolved to make him accept a handsome sum of money, more than he could spare, something that he would feel the loss of, in payment of the lessons in German and fencing given so long ago. At the usual rate for such lessons, his debt, with interest for twenty-odd years, would run very far into the hundreds. Too far, he perceived, for his wife's joyous approval. He determined not to add the interest. Or he believed that Lindau would refuse the interest. He put a fine speech in his mouth, making him do so, and after that he got Lindau employment on every other week, and took care of him till he died. Through all his melancholy and munificence he was aware of sordid anxieties for having taken the Grosvenor Green apartment. These began to assume visible, tangible shapes as he drowsed, 
and to become personal entities from which he woke with little starts to a realization of their true nature and then suddenly fell fast asleep in the accomplishment of the events which his reverie played with there was much that retroactively stamped it with prophecy but much also that was better than he foreboded he found that with regard to the grosvenor green apartment he had not allowed for his wife's willingness to get any sort of roof over her head again after the removal from their old home or for the alleviations that grow up through mere custom the practical workings of the apartment were not so bad it had its good points and after the first sensation of oppression in it they began to feel the convenience of its arrangement they were at that time of life when people first turned to their children's opinion with deference and in the loss of keenness in their own likes and dislikes consult the young preferences which are still so sensitive it went far to reconcile mrs march to the apartment that her children were pleased with its novelty when this wore off for them she had herself begun to find it much more easily manageable than a house after she had put away several barrels of gimcracks and folded up screens and rugs and skins and carried them all off to the little dark storeroom which the flat developed she perceived at once a roominess and a coziness in it unsuspected before then when people began to call she had a pleasure a superiority in saying that it was a furnished apartment and in disclaiming all responsibility for the upholstery and decoration if march was by she always explained that it was mr march's fancy and amiably laughed it off with her callers as a mannish eccentricity nobody really seemed to think it otherwise than pretty and this again was a triumph for mrs march because it showed how inferior the new york taste was to the boston taste in such matters march submitted silently to his punishment and laughed with her before company at his own eccentricity she had been so preoccupied with the adjustment of the family to its new quarters and circumstances that the time passed for laying his misgivings if they were misgivings about fulkerson before her and when an occasion came for expressing them they had themselves passed in the anxieties of getting forward the first number of every other week he kept these from her too and the business that brought them to new york had apparently dropped into abeyance before the questions of domestic economy that presented and absented themselves march knew his wife to be a woman of good mind and in perfect sympathy with him but he understood the limitations of her perspective and if he was not too wise he was too experienced to intrude upon it any affairs of his till her own were reduced to the right order and proportion it would have been folly to talk to her of fulkerson's conjecturable uncandor while she was in doubt whether her cook would like the kitchen or her two servants would consent to room together until it was decided what school tom should go to and whether bella should have lessons at home or not the relation which march was to bear to the dryfooses as owner and publisher was not to be discussed with his wife he might drag it in but he was aware that with her mind distracted by more immediate interests he could not get from her that judgment that reasoned divination which she relied upon so much she would try she would do her best but the result would be a view clouded and discoloured by the effort she must make 
He put the whole matter by, and gave himself to the details of the work before him. In this he found not only escape, but reassurance, for it became more and more apparent that whatever was nominally the structure of the business, a man of his qualifications and his instincts could not have an insignificant place in it. He had also the consolation of liking his work, and getting an instant grasp of it that grew constantly firmer and closer. The joy of knowing that he had not made a mistake was great. In giving rein to ambitions long foreborne, he seemed to get back to the youth when he had indulged them first, and after half a lifetime passed in pursuits alien to his nature, he was feeling the serene happiness of being mated through his work to his early love. From the outside the spectacle might have had its pathos, and it is not easy to justify such an experiment as he had made at his time of life, except upon the ground where he rested from its consideration, the ground of necessity. His work was more in his thoughts than himself, however, and as the time for publication of the first number of his periodical came nearer, his cares all centred upon it. Without fixing any date, Fulkerson had announced it, and pushed his announcement with the shameless vigour of a born advertiser. He worked his interest with the press to the utmost, and paragraphs of a variety that did credit to his ingenuity were afloat everywhere. Some of them were speciously unfavourable in tone. They criticised and even ridiculed the principles on which the new departure in literary journalism was based. Others defended it. Others yet denied that this rumoured principle was really the principle. All contributed to make talk. All proceeded from the same fertile invention. March observed with a degree of mortification that the talk was very little of it in the New York press. There the references to the novel enterprise were slight and cold. But Fulkerson said, "'Don't mind that, old man. It's the whole country that makes or breaks a thing like this. New York has very little to do with it. Now, if it were a play, it would be different. New York does make or break a play, but it doesn't make or break a book. It doesn't make or break a magazine. The great mass of the readers are outside of New York, and the rural districts are what we have got to go for. They don't read much in New York. They write and talk about what they've written. Don't you worry." The rumour of Fulkerson's connection with the Enterprise accompanied many of the paragraphs, and he was able to stay March's thirst for employment by turning over to him from day to day heaps of manuscripts which began to pour in from his old syndicate writers, as well as from adventurous volunteers all over the country. With these in hand, March began practically to plan the first number, and to concrete a general scheme from the material and the experience they furnished. They had intended to issue the first number with the new year, and if it had been an affair of literature alone, it would have been very easy. But it was the art leg they limped on, as Fulkerson phrased it. They had not merely to deal with the question of specific illustrations for this article or that, but to decide the whole character of their illustrations, and first of all to get a design for a cover which should both ensnare the heedless and captivate the fastidious. These things did not come properly within March's province. That had been clearly understood, and for a while Fulkerson tried to run the art leg himself. The phrase was again his, but it was simpler to make the phrase than to run the leg. 
the difficult generation at once stiff-backed and slippery with which he had to do in this endeavour reduced even so buoyant an optimist to despair and after wasting some valuable weeks in trying to work the artists himself he determined to get an artist to work them but what artist it could not be a man with fixed reputation and a following he would be too costly and would have too many enemies among his brethren even if he would consent to undertake the job fulkerson had a man in mind an artist too who would have been the very thing if he had been the thing at all he had talent enough and his sort of talent would reach round the whole situation but as fulkerson said he was as many kinds of an ass as he was kinds of an artist End of chapter 12